This talk was given by John Dido Lori Roshi. Dido Roshi was the founder of Zen Mountain Monastery and the Mountains and Rivers Order and served as the guiding teacher for almost 30 years until his passing in 2009. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Koans of the Way of Reality. Jinching's What Source Is That? The main case. A monk asked Master Jinching Daofu, the student has not yet arrived at the source. I asked for the master's expedient guidance. Jinching said, what source is that? The monk said, the source. Jinching said, well, if it's that source, how could you get any expedient guidance? The monk bowed in thanks and went away. Jinching's attendant said, just now, did the master give that monk support or not? Jinching said, no. The attendant said, then you didn't answer his question? Jinching said, no. The attendant said, I don't understand the master's meaning. Jinching said, one drop is just black ink. Two drops and a dragon is created. The commentary. Jinching knew clearly what can be communicated and what cannot. He also knew how to get out of the way and allow the wisdom that has no teacher to come forth. If you wish to understand this, you must return to mind and arrive at its source. But don't pursue the source. Attaining its source, its end will also be reached. If you want to know the source, then just know your own mind. The visiting monk got it, but the attendant didn't. Do you get it? Tell me, if the master didn't give the questioner support or answer his question, why would he bow in thanks? Haven't you heard the Buddha's saying, a high-mettled horse seeing the whip's shadow goes a thousand miles following the wind? Jinching said, one drop is just black ink. Two drops and a dragon is created. I say, the single drop of black ink is the dragon. It's just that it will never be seen until the brush is free of the artist. If you wish to understand this koan, enter here. The capping verse. The power of wind moves the sailboat without rowing. The flute calls the moon down to the valley. Beneath the frozen crust, spiritual sprouts wait for the warm spring breeze to awaken them. So in the commentary, the opening line, Jin Ching, and Jin Ching is a um, successor in the lineage of Shifeng. And... Um, he came, um, according to the transmission of the lamp, at age six, he suddenly refused to eat meat or strong foods. And when his parents forced him to eat dried fish, he would immediately throw it up. And uh, while he was still a youngster, he, he uh, got himself ordained. 
and then later traveled to Elephant Bone Mountain where he first encountered Chifeng and Swifeng and, and became his successor. And uh, was, was one of the highly regarded masters of that period. So Jin Ching knew clearly what can be communicated and what cannot. Um, well, we talked this weekend in the workshop about the special transmission outside of sutras uh, with no reliance on words and letters. And so the question was a question that goes right to the heart of what the Buddhist teachings uh, are all about. And um, um, the master was very, um, very skillful in handling that question. And the next line says, he also knew how to get out of the way and allow the wisdom that has no teacher to come forth. That is the question. And the questioner uh, both contained the answer. If you wish to understand this, you must return to mind and arrive at its source. What is mind? And there's where, you know, there's a big difference in the way that we understand mind in the West and the way mind is understood in the East and the way mind is understood in Buddhism, which is a big, big difference. Uh, what is the mind? Where is the mind? What's its location? Is it in the brain? Um, and I've mentioned before that if you ask a young child, you know, kindergarten age or preschool age, to point to their mind in, in the West, inevitably they'll point to their head. And uh, in the East, particularly in Japan, I don't know if it's still true today, but it was 20 years ago, they'll point to their hara, not to the head. So where is it? Where is it located? Is it some kind of an isolated faculty that's uh, the content of the brain? Um, in Buddhism, we speak of body-mind unity. There's no way that you, you can look at the mind as being separate from the body. But taking it further, is there any way of looking at the mind as being an entity separate from the rest of the universe. So is mind a personal possession? My mind, your mind? Or is it universal mind? It's kind of interesting questions. And uh, the other day I got a, uh, a, uh, a note from uh, Kyosho who sent me uh, a little thing that appeared on the web about... Uh, uh, neuroplasticity, some research that was, that's going on. It's like a couple of months old, but not really a couple of months old. The research is a couple of months old, but the whole content has been going on for a long time. And uh, in fact, that book, Zen in the Brain, if you can get through it, he talks about these, the possibilities of neuroplasticity. And... <clears throat> um, a group of scientists, it seems, got together, uh, neuroscientists, and uh, they wanted to explore this without appealing to either spiritual or non-physical aspects. They wanted hard physical evidence. 
And uh, so what happened is, uh, uh, and then here are the two entirely different uh, uh, points of view on what mind is. The uh, uh, neuroscience says it's a manifestation of the brain, and the Buddhists say it's not <laughs> a manifestation of the brain. So, so now we've got a group of scientists and a group of monks, Tibetan monks, that they gather together. And what they're looking at is the ability of the brain uh, to change its structure and function as a result of meditation. And uh, they collected these... uh, One of the things that led them to this is they knew uh, ahead of time that, for example... um, uh, there's a region of the brain that controls the index finger and the middle finger. And that in the case of uh, pianists who uh, play a particular kind of, uh, of fast-tempoed music, uh, what did they call it? Um, arpeggios. Musicians may know that. The brain uh, uh, fuses these two fingers because they're they're always struck at the same time. And as a result, the fingers begin to function as one, and uh, the pianist can no longer move the two fingers, these fingers, independently of one another. They're kind of fused because of that restructuring of the brain. So they were interested in this. And they started these uh, experiments where they got a group of Buddhist monks who had spent more than 10,000 hours in meditation and asked them to practice compassion meditation, that is, generate a feeling of loving kindness toward all beings. Um, They tried to generate a mental state in which compassion permeates the whole mind with no other thoughts. Okay, So these were monks... Who ha- and then there were novice monks, one monks that had only done a thousand or two thousand hours of meditation. Now the ten thousand hours of meditation, I, I was showing this to Koto the other day. We were at the studio and we sat down and did a calculation. So just for your own information, uh, if you practice in residence for ten years and follow the schedule exactly, so we counted all the sessions, the week long. Sitting, oh, we didn't count weekend sessions. We only counted uh, the week, week long ones. Daily sitting, evening sitting. We didn't count extra sitting that people do. It takes 10 years, full time residential training, to reach that place of 10,000 hours, 10,000 flying hours of meditation. Um, and what they found was pretty extraordinary. They were all excited about it. Um, they found that um, that um, incredible high frequency brain activity came out of these ten thousand hour practitioners, the senior practitioners, let's call them, and they called them gamma waves, um, and that the novice meditators only showed very slight increase, almost imperceptible uh, gamma activity. Uh, and then um, very large increases of a sort that had never been reported before in neuroscience 
suggesting that mental training can bring the brain to a totally different level of consciousness. And what they found was kind of interesting. They found that the activity of the left prefrontal cortex, the seat of positive emotions, and somebody asked me this question in Doksan yesterday, and I told him I would talk about it today, um, the site of negative emotions and anxiety, um, something never before seen from purely mental activity, uh, and that the, the positive emotions, such as happiness and joy, swamped the activity in that prefrontal site. In other words, just kind of obscured it so that it was almost non-existent. Uh, and in the, this did not happen in the novice monks, only consistently among the 10,000 uh, hours of sitting people. And the other thing that they noticed is that an area of the brain they weren't even ready to show anything um, uh, showed a sprawling circuit that switches on at the site of suffering, the site of suffering, and at the same time showed greater activity uh, in regions responsible for planned movement. It was as if the monks' brains were itching to go to the aid of those in distress. So they would get them sitting, and then they would show them suffering. And what would happen is suddenly a certain part of the brain would come alive, like the, this need to respond. This was not happening in the other monks. Um, and so these people are now all very, very excited about it. And uh, 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 even the neuroscientists are reevaluating how we understand mind, how we understand human consciousness. Uh, so, if you wish to understand this, you must return to mind and arrive at its source. But don't pursue its source. And of course, don't pursue its source is the problem of goals. The minute we create a goal, we create a duality. Practice and its goal, enlightenment, are one reality. Dogen has been, 13th century, was hammering at that. They're not two separate entities. Practice is enlightenment. Enlightenment is practice. They're non-dual. The process that takes you to the goal and the goal are the same reality. So don't pursue the source. You must return to the mind and arrive at the source, but don't pursue the source. Attaining the source, its end will also be reached. The process contains the goal. Goal contains the process. Process does not precede the goal, nor does the goal follow the process. Process and goal are non-dual in the way. It's hard to believe that in a world that's so goal-oriented as ours. If you want to know the source, then just know your own mind. The study of the Buddha way is to study the self. One master said, there is but one vehicle for attaining Buddhahood, and that is to understand the great principle, that is to connect with the source of mind. If you haven't become clear about this great principle, then you haven't embodied the teaching, the source. 
It's a very tantalizing thing. It's the itch that you can't scratch. Now, most religions deal with that by reference to God. God is the source. It's where it all originates from. And I remember when I was a kid, and I've told you this before, and, you know, we had to recite this in catechism, who made the world? God made the world. Who made God? God always was and will be. Well, even at 10 years old, I wanted to know, how do you know that? And I asked the nun, of course, she gave me a hard time. But the same question persisted much later when I began to study physics and look at the universe. Okay, so this is the universe. What's outside of that? Well, there's just that. Well, where does it end? And, and what's holding it? Well, that's it. There's nothing outside of that. The itch still itches, doesn't it? You know, where does it come from? How does it start? We have it in Buddhism, the source. What is the source? If you want to know the source, then just know your own mind. The source of mind, another master, Fa Chang said, the source of mind is the entire world. The myriad dharmas are the source of mind. When the mind manifests, the innumerable dharmas are thus manifested. When the mind passes away, the myriad dharmas pass away. Mind does not, however, dependently arise according to conditions of good or evil. The myriad dharmas arise in their own thusness. Another monk asked Master Guanyin, what's the source of the great way? The master hit him. A monk asked, if one, want, one wants to reach, reach the road of no life and death, one must first see the original source. What is the original source? Baofu was silent for a long time. Then after a while, he turned to his attendant and said, what was it that monk just asked me? And the monk repeated his question and Baofu yelled, I'm not deaf. The commentary goes on. The visiting monk got it, but the attendant didn't. The monk asked, I asked, the student has not yet arrived at the source. I asked for the master's expedient guidance. The master said, what source is that? The monk said, the source. Junjing said, well, if it's that source, how could you get any expedient guidance? The monk bowed in thanks and went away. The attendant said, just now, did the master give the monk support or not? Jinching said, no. The attendant said, then you didn't answer his question? Jinching said, no. And the attendant said, I don't understand the master's meaning. So, visiting monk got it, but the attendant didn't. There's a similar case. The outsider questions the Buddha. The outsider said to the Buddha, I do not ask about the spoken or the unspoken. The world honored one just remained silent. The outsider sighed in admiration and said, the world honored one's great kindness and great compassion have opened up my clouds of illusion and let me gain entry. After the outsider left, Ananda said to the Buddha, what did the outsider realize that he said he had gained entry? It's the same question here. That Ananda was asking the Buddha. Ananda was the Buddha's attendant. He was standing right there. He watched the whole thing. He didn't get it. This attendant was standing right there, watched the whole thing, and he didn't get it. Do you get it? Is the next question in the commentary. 
Is there anything to impart or not? What is it that's being carried from generation to generation? We need to appreciate the fact that this practice is a process of discovery that's in the hands of each and every one of us. No one can do it for us. And it is a process. And it's pretty clear that the longer you engage the process, the deeper you go into it. Otherwise, you wouldn't see that difference among the 10,000 flying hours and the two or 3,000 flying hours. The longer you sit, the deeper you go. It doesn't mean that a 1,000 hours has no value. Just like Master Hakuin said, just one period of zazen already begins that process of transformation of the way we perceive ourselves in the universe. The next line says, tell me if the master didn't give the questioner support or answer his questions, why did he bow and thanks? It's pretty clear that something happened. The question is, what was it? And part of that same koan I just told you about the, uh, about the uh, Buddha uh, after the outsider had left, uh, well, the next line says, haven't you heard the Buddha's saying, a high metal horse seeing the whip's shadow goes a thousand miles following the wind. When Ananda said, what did the outsider realize that he claimed to have gained entry? The Buddha said, it's like a good horse. It goes as soon as it sees the shadow of the whip. What was he pointing to there? High metal horse is one that's, you know, all charged and ready to respond, awake, alert, focused, present. So you don't need the whip. You just make the gesture and it's off. Like a shot. Jin Ching said, one drop is just black ink. Two drops and a dragon is created. One drop is just black ink. How do you understand that statement? That's the key, that's a pivotal point of this koan. Putting a brush to paper is kind of an interesting process particularly when you practice the art of, for example, ink drawing or calligraphy without some kind of a sketch or a rehearsal that it becomes a spontaneous interaction of that moment and the paper. And as you sit in the presence of that paper, that just big, blank, empty space that has nothing, the moment the brush touches it, all of the possibilities spring into action. Putting the brush to paper, the word hasn't yet materialized. The character hasn't yet materialized. The word hasn't materialized. The image hasn't materialized. Not yet, anyway. It's just a blob of black ink. Two drops and a dragon is created. 
And in order to appreciate that, you need to appreciate the dragon. And what a dragon is. And again, dragons east and west are quite different. Aside from a few cartoon, Disney cartoon things, uh, we kill dragons in the west. That's what St. George was famous for, killing the dragon. In the east, dragons are venerated. They're enlightened beings. And there are all kinds of dragons. There are blue dragons, there are black dragons, there's white dragon, Hakurasan, that's the guardian deity of this temple, Hakurasan, the white dragon. The back of the hall, that plaque that's on the wall, the characters for Hakurasan. And the dragon holds in its claw a jewel. And the jewel is the teaching, the many jewel, realization. And so, single drop, one drop, just black ink. It hasn't yet distinguished itself. Two drops, and the dragon is created. A dragon is created. The first step is the two drops. It begins the journey of 10,000 miles. It begins the journey of spiritual unfoldment. It begins the journey to that 10,000 hours of sitting kind of consciousness. The next line says, I say, the single drop of black ink is the dragon. You don't need a second drop. It's already there. Before the first step is taken, it's already there. That's what we need to see. That's what we need to trust. That's what we need to practice. That's what this visiting monk had and the attendant didn't have. So Jing Ching said, one drop is just black ink, two drops, and a dragon is created. I say the single drop of black ink is the dragon. It's just that it will never be seen until the brush is free of the artist. Do you understand that? to study the self, which is what we said up in the beginning here, you know, that you, in order to get to the source, you need to see the mind. See the mind is to study the self. To study the self ultimately is to forget the self. To forget the self is the brush painting by itself. It's the camera photographing by itself. It's the dance dancing the dance. It's the music flowing of its own power. There's nobody at the helm. There's no controller. It's just the total pure activity itself. 
That's a way of sitting zazen. It's a way of creating art. It's a way of combusting our lives, raising a child. And the next line says, if you wish to understand this koan, enter there, enter here. The practice of Buddhism, and particularly the practice of Zen, is not an easy one. Because it specifically will not allow you to give your power away to someone else, whether it be a teacher, an institution, a high priest, or the founder of the religion, the Shakyamuni Buddha. It continually throws you back on yourself, and it relentlessly throws the questions at you. If you don't have questions of your own, you can bet your life on it that Zen will have the questions for you. That's what the koans are. That's what the challenge is. It's easy to sit cross-legged and contemplate your navel or whatever. And if you do this consistently and you do it for a long period of time, you will definitely reach a place that's very quiet and very peaceful and very dead and very unrelated to your life. And for that reason, we have practice. For that reason, we have teachers. For that reason, we have monasteries and training centers. The only function of all these things is to constantly poke at us and make sure we don't settle down anywhere and always keep our edge active and the great doubt alive. Otherwise, practice can just be another dead end, what what so many of the koans deal with. A dead person lying in a coffin with their eyes open. So it's easy to get quiet. How do you take it out into the world? How do you take it out into life? How do you create that consciousness that these monks were showing of great compassion and that sense of when they saw suffering it wasn't just a casual observation it was like a high metal horse moving at the shadow of a whip the minute they saw it they were leaning forward ready to go like a a runner at the starting gate They saw it. They didn't go to some philosophical point of view. They didn't pray for the person. They took full responsibility for it. I see pain and I must respond to it. It was an imperative, not a philosophical question, not something that could be turned over to somebody else. I am the only one that can do it. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them, not somebody else. How do you get there? How do you create that kind of consciousness? It's 
It's our human potential. We have the possibility to do that. Every one of us, those, those uh, Tibetan monks are nothing special. Buddha was an ordinary human being. He wasn't some superhero. He lived and he died just like all of us. It's what you do in between that makes the difference. The capping verse. The power of the wind moves the sailboat without rowing. The flute voice calls the moon down to the valley. Beneath the frozen crust, spiritual sprouts wait for the warm spring breeze to awaken them. The power of the wind moves the sailboat without rowing. The flute voice calls the moon down to the valley. Jinzu, just what we got finished looking at, spiritual power, miraculous power. What is that? Each step follows the other. Beneath the frozen crust, spiritual sprouts wait for the warm spring breeze to awaken them. Those spiritual sprouts are within each one of us, guaranteed they're in each one of us. You wouldn't be sitting in this hall if they weren't there. And even the most vile among us has those spiritual sprouts. Even the most unlikely in history have those spiritual sprouts. Some may awaken them and some may not. But they're there. And they're crusted over, frozen over. And if we're lucky enough to experience that warm spring breeze, they come to life. They need to be nurtured. They need to be cultivated. And that's what our practice is about. And that's no small thing. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org.